Good morning. So just to uh, give you a little background, a little deeper background on me and my family, I'm originally from Cape Cod, born and raised there. My wife is from uh, the town of Mashpee, that's where she grew up. I'm from Falmouth and went to high school in Hyannis, spent a lot of time up there, Have uh, had a lot of friends there and um, sort of like built that vision and that call and that, that passion for Hyannis, you know, even just looking back on memories there and uh, of being in high school. Um, I grew up in a non-religious family. I didn't meet a Christian until I was 21 years old. Or if I didn't meet a Christian, they didn't share the gospel with me. Uh, it took about three years for me to actually hear the gospel and understand it. And in the meantime, I had been pursuing a degree in biology. I wanted to be a doctor. And I was afraid that God was going to take that away from me. And uh, so I just hesitated to hand my life over to him. And then when I heard the gospel, I realized he's actually the one who handed his life over for me. And that that truth hit very deeply and uh, changed my life. Soon after that, I immediately uh, had a desire to see my friends, my family, my neighbors, the people I grew up with, the people that I encounter every day on the Cape who were just like me, that aren't encountering the gospel, aren't meeting Christians. I had the desire to see them come to know Jesus and, and just experience that freedom that I was experiencing, uh, the freedom from hopelessness. Uh, the Cape is a place where you can kind of feel like you're trapped on an island sometimes. Not a lot of work, not a lot of community opportunity, um, just a really hopeless place. And so my desire is to see uh, our friends, our family, our former co-workers, uh, the people that we'll meet when we're there, come to know Jesus and to see Christians mobilized so that they're actually pursuing those people. So those people can't avoid even having a conversation with a Christian, hearing the gospel and experiencing uh, the life-changing grace of God. And so uh, that's why we're planting a church in Hyannis. We've spent time up here with you guys. We've gotten to uh, absorb the Seven Mile Road DNA. And we're excited to, to do this thing in our home area um, together. And so uh, just grateful for you guys. I'm going to pray before we start reading, um, before, we, before I start preaching, uh, that the Lord would speak and that we would hear and that we would listen to his word, that we would receive it deeply. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that um, we gather here today together, um, that we can listen to your word, that we can be transformed by your word, that you are a gracious God who seeks our good, and that you have a plan to spread your kingdom, to grow your kingdom, and that you want to use us for that plan. May we Have open ears to listen to what you have to say to us in that regard. And may you empower us to to go and do those things. In Jesus' name, amen. So, December 17th, 1903. Does anybody know what happened on that day? What momentous event occurred? I wouldn't have known either if I didn't just read it while I was preparing the sermon. But uh, December 17th, 1903 was the date that Orville and Wilbur Wright had their first successful flight in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. Before that day, 
our only version of flight was to lift something into the air like you would with a blimp. And on that day, they sent a telegram to their family members back in Dayton, Ohio. And they said, success, four flights on Thursday morning, all against 21 mile per hour wind. We started from level with engine power alone, average speed through the air, 31 miles per hour. Longest flight, 57 seconds. Inform the press, we'll be home for Christmas. They were adamant that the news break in their hometown. So their older brother, Lauren, he ran the telegram to the Associated Press at the Dayton Journal. And what do you think the biggest headline was the next day? Stores are filled with Christmas shoppers. They still get flack for that one. The editor rejected the story completely. He chose to publish a story about Christmas shopping instead of sharing the groundbreaking achievement that would change the world forever. He totally missed it. The Wright brothers had a rough time getting their story published, actually. Uh, Another newspaper did take on the story. They're called the Virginia Pilot, but uh, they got wind of it, and they couldn't confirm any details with the Wright brothers, so they decided to fill in their own details. So they told this story about a plane with one propeller that would pull it off the ground and another propeller that would push it forward. They got the story completely wrong. Lastly, another local newspaper, the Dayton Daily News, ran the story, but they buried it on page 8, and they called the rights emulators of this guy named Santos Dumont, who uh, he actually worked a lot with what we would call blimps. So they totally missed it too. Their achievement was much greater than simply lifting another object into the air. And it was going to be much bigger than anybody ever knew. So the Dayton Journal, the Virginia Pilot, the Dayton Daily News, they all missed it. As successful as the Wright brothers were with their first flight, they had little success spreading the message. Because no one really received it. Some just totally rejected it, others altered it, others tucked it away on page 8. One of the most groundbreaking achievements in history. An accomplishment that changed travel forever, changed war forever, was completely rejected or at best misrepresented more than it was received. I mean, that didn't change how monumental their achievement was, and it didn't change the trajectory of their success. We all know airplanes are a really big deal today, right? Uh, That pattern is actually going to show up in this passage as we look at Jesus' kingdom growth parables. So we're in chapter 4 of Mark's gospel today, and uh, just to give a little background, at this point in Mark, Jesus has already put himself in front of lots of different people, and most people have rejected him. One big lesson in Mark is that proximity to Jesus does not equal intimacy with Jesus. It doesn't even mean recognition of Jesus. So before getting to chapter 4, the religious leaders, they've already uh, plotted to kill the God-man. The crowds that have been following Jesus, uh, they've been following him everywhere, but they're only following him for miracles. His own family thinks he's out of his mind, so they're attempting to disrupt his ministry. How could people from experts to superfans, even family, be so blind? 
Up to now, Jesus has been preaching the good news of the kingdom, but it seems like no one's listening. And at this point, his disciples might be wondering, is this kingdom thing even going to happen? Jesus' approval rating doesn't look promising. It's here where Jesus is going to explain to his disciples and to us the reason behind this varied receptivity to him and his word. And he's going to explain it through parables that give us some of the first glimpses in Mark into the kingdom that he's been telling everybody is near. We're going to look at uh, three parables in Mark today, chapter 4. All of them talk about seeds. All of them talk about growth. And each seeks to set our expectation about the kingdom. So each parable has got its own message about the kingdom. And the first, we're going to see the plan for kingdom growth. The second, Jesus is going to show us the process for kingdom growth. And then the third, we're going to look at the ultimate progress of kingdom growth. So we're going to look at the plan, the process, and the progress. Let's look at this first parable uh, that Matt read, and we'll see what's going on, uh, what Jesus says about the plan for kingdom growth. Uh, Just summarize what he said. There are four seeds and four circumstances. The first seed that fell on the path was snatched away by birds. The second, which fell on rocky soil, was scorched. The third, which fell among thorns, was choked by them. And the fourth and final seed grew and bore fruit, yielding 30, 60 to 100 fold. So what does this mean? That's the question that Jesus' disciples have. And he tells them in private. If you read with me, uh, beginning in chapter 4, verse 10. Jesus says, uh, And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So I'm going to reveal the secret of the kingdom of God to you right now. Are you ready? It's that Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. And he used parables as a way of revealing deep truths about the kingdom. But the only ones who understood him were the ones who believed that he was who he said he was. Those who rejected him or called him crazy, they would never understand the parables. Because the key to understanding them is knowing who Jesus is. Believing in Jesus. A deep hearing and understanding of the word of God comes only when we believe in Jesus. With that in mind, let's read on and uh, look at what Jesus' explanation is of this parable. Verse 14. He says, The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it 
and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. So the seed is the word. This is the word that Jesus has been sowing. And the condition of the ground represents the condition of the hearer. In other words, the ground's ability to support deep roots represents the ability of the hearer to understand what they hear. Now remember, the key to understanding the word about Jesus is knowing Jesus himself. So Jesus lays out three negative reactions to him in this parable. And there have been examples of these in the, in the previous chapters that I've talked about. The religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, they have no reception of the word. They do not and they will not recognize Jesus. Seed has been sown, but it might as well have been snatched away by the birds because there's no reception at all. In fact, what they hear incites them to plot Jesus' murder. The crowds are amped up because Jesus is doing miracles, but they've got little interest in what any of this means. Who is the man performing these miracles? They were along for the ride, but we'll see uh, if you were to read on in Mark that the crowd is a, uh, a large presence in Mark. And they're singing Jesus' praises now, following him, but they're going to actually be calling for his blood in a few chapters. Why? Because as Jesus says, they have no root. There's no depth to their hearing. They've missed the message. And when persecution arises, they're either going to disappear or they're going to align themselves with the ones that they think are the most dominant. So that's rocky, shallow soil, unable to support kingdom growth. Then we've got Jesus' own family who, uh, just a chapter ago, they disrupted Jesus' ministry because they think he's gone crazy. He's embarrassing. He's getting too big. He's going too far. They're seized and choked by the cares of this world. No growth. Then, it's in contrast to these that were shown the seed sown on good soil and the abundant, fruitful growth that's in store. Jesus identifies the good soil as those who can support growth because they've heard the word and they've accepted it. And growth isn't just for the sake of growth alone. The purpose of growth is to yield fruit, right? Something useful. A product of growth. To the farmer, not only does uh, growth mean fruit, it also means multiplication. Like if you bite down to the core of an apple, what's there? Seeds, right? The makings of multiplication. I heard a saying the other day that uh, one acorn has the power to cover the entire world in forest. Think about that. Think about the power of a seed that bears fruit. But there is a limiting factor, right? That's the ground where it's planted. And this is what Jesus is getting at. The, the kingdom growth plan is people who deeply receive the word of God and deeply receive Jesus. It's these people who are going to grow and it's these people who are going to produce fruit and it's these people who will cast even more seed. Jesus says there's going to be a 30 to 60 to 100 fold harvest. Nobody gets that kind of harvest, even today. The most amazing thing about this parable is the fact that the farmer has a one in four shot to, to yield anything. But when one makes it, it yields more than all four would have in the normal world. It's a harvest that's beyond what anybody would expect. 
Never downplay the magnitude of one person receiving Jesus. If you're a believer, never downplay the magnitude of the fact that you have received Jesus. There are grand implications for that. We can get so self-conscious about our own ability to share the gospel or tell others about Jesus that we lose sight of the truth in this passage. Jesus is saying, varied results? Yes. But when the word falls on ears that listen, on hearts where the seed takes deep root, watch out. There's going to be a harvest like you've never seen. If you're a believer, you're evidence of this. If you're sharing the gospel and it seems like no one's responding, that's actually normal. Jesus said that would happen. But never stop sharing. Because there is good soil out there. There is. Your own testimony is proof of that. Think of how you encountered the gospel when you first responded with belief. The time when when the word took root in you. It's probably not uh, a unique circumstance. There's probably more people who have encountered the word that way who who haven't responded. I first heard the gospel when I was 24 uh, at a church on Cape Cod. Before me, many non-believers came in. After me, many non-believers went out unchanged. But one day, I stepped through those doors. I heard the word. I heard about Jesus, and I recognized him. For the first time, I recognized him. And then I walked out, and the kingdom population grew by one. Then I shared the gospel with the people I knew, my friends, my family. And what happened? Some rejected it, but some actually listened. A person here, a person there, and then they shared. And then maybe some of the people that they shared with have shared. Many of you have stories like that. A lot of you are the product of stories like that. There's no limit to what God can do when we share the good news. That's the growth plan of the kingdom. That's why my family's planting a church. We want another outpost for the gospel on Cape Cod in Hyannis. We want to live as a send people, sowing the gospel, uh, giving everybody an opportunity to encounter it, to encounter Jesus, to encounter his people, because God loves Cape Codders. And the kingdom growth plan is people. Uh, Before we move on to the growth process, I don't want us to miss the warning that comes with this parable. Um, Verse 24 talks about it. Uh, Jesus says, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So what's Jesus saying here? He's saying it can get comfortable being on the inside, right? And he knows that even his own disciples are susceptible to the factors that hinder growth. I mean, we're not immune to shallowness, right? We're not immune to thorns. We scale back our love for Jesus to avoid persecution, I read a great insight on this uh, from Ed Welch, a biblical counselor slash author. He says, uh, I imagine most Christians would say, yes, I'm a believer, if it meant death. Torture, maybe they'd think twice. But if acknowledging Jesus meant that we might spend years being unpopular, ignored, poor, criticized... 
then there are masses of Christians who temporarily put their faith on the shelf. Death isn't imminent. There's time to get things straight with God. He says, sometimes we would prefer to die for Jesus rather than to live for him. Jesus is saying that this is a life with no growth, with no fruit. A life that's no longer on the kingdom growth plan. See, the thing about soil is that it generally has to stay fertile. Not just to sprout seed, but also to sustain life. As plants grow past the stage of a seedling, they're definitely hardier, right? But they also require more nutrients. They can't flourish in bad soil. The same way we can't flourish when we lose our receptivity to Jesus and the word of God. So yeah, we have a part in the kingdom growth plan. The plan is people. Our job is to remain receptive to Jesus and to spread the good news of Jesus. Some will accept it. Some will reject it. But remember that our job is sowing for the kingdom, not growing the kingdom itself. We're the plan, but God has not tasked us with the process of growing the kingdom. We spread the gospel, but we have no control over who receives it, right? Uh, That brings us actually to our next parable, where Jesus is going to talk about this kingdom growth process. Now we're moving to a new parable. Uh, That means that uh, this actually has its own kind of interpretation. We're going to see a lot of the same characters in there, seed, soil, uh, but they don't necessarily represent the same thing. So we read this in the context of Jesus' overall message in this passage, but we've got to look at the interpretation of this individual parable uh, on its own. So look with me at verse 26. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. Now again, Jesus mentions scattered seed on the ground, but this time there's no mention of soil variation. Why? Because the emphasis here is on the growth itself. And the first thing that we see about that growth is that it's independent from the farmer. He says the earth just produces by itself. Uh, Jesus says that a person has no power over the growth of the plant. In the same way, kingdom growth isn't subject to our efforts. God is the one who grows the kingdom. And God is the one who's going to bring it to fruition. So the process of kingdom growth is God-driven. Be encouraged by that, that God is at work as you sow this seed. Next thing we see is that it's slow. Night after night, day after day, he says, piece by piece, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain. If we look back at chapter 1, Jesus begins his ministry by telling people the kingdom of God is near. But he doesn't say how it's going to come or when we should expect to experience this full uh, new reign of God. Here he's telling us it's slow. He's setting our expectation. For his disciples, this means this isn't happening today. Contrary to their desire, Jesus isn't here to overthrow the Roman government. You know, we can get like this too, right? 
There's this poisonous misconception that if we could just get so-and-so into office or if we could just get this freedom or if we could get that freedom, if we could just get our Christian society back, everything would be great, right? That's not a kingdom mindset. It's not a kingdom mindset because it's not the mindset of the king. Jesus says this is God's work. It's slow and very sure. We have one king, right? His name's Jesus. In Acts chapter 1, after Jesus has resurrected and is about to ascend into heaven, his disciples ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he basically tells them, that's not your business. The Father has fixed that time. It's his business. And he tells them, but you, you will be my witnesses. Your job is to tell people about me. Our job is to tell people about him. I don't want to minimize that, you know, sometimes it feels like we're insignificant people, right? We, we feel singled out, weird, ostracized at times, silenced. This stuff's actually hard, especially here in New England. Our conversations with our friends and our family and our coworkers feel strained and awkward at times because we're probably viewed as stupid for believing in Jesus. I mean, I thought Christians were stupid before I was one. Uh, But yeah, I mean, that is a real thing that we experience. I don't want to minimize that. As I mentioned earlier, I didn't even meet a Christian until I was 21. 21 years, and I never ran into one of God's people. Or if I did, they didn't tell me about Jesus. Where are all the kingdom people? Jesus' disciples likely felt the same. They're supposed to be sowers, and they're hearing that the condition of the ground that they're supposed to be working is actually unfriendly to growth. Sure, God's at work, but this thing's pretty small right now. They've hitched their wagons to Jesus, and compared to the crowd, the religious authorities, the Roman Empire, they're not just a small faction, they're actually nobodies. Jesus actually speaks to this in his third and the final parable that we're going to talk about today. Uh, Look with me at verse 30. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Now Jesus compares the kingdom of God to the poster child of small seeds. Have you seen a mustard seed? If you take a look under your seat right now, I put a mustard seed under each seat. Whoever finds one can get 10 bucks. Just kidding. No, I didn't put anything there. But if I did, you probably wouldn't have been able to find it, especially with the color of this floor. Now, the kingdom of God is just as easily missed. We know that from Jesus' first parable. But we know from his last parable that it's not going to stay that way. In the same way the mustard seed grows up and becomes the largest plant in the garden, the kingdom of God will be immeasurably larger than what we see today. The kingdom of God isn't an insignificant opposing faction. And Jesus isn't a faction leader. He's a king. And his is the one true kingdom. 
Do you know that in uh, 2012, it was estimated that there were 2.2 billion Christians on earth? How many were there when Jesus began his ministry? Well, that's just a snapshot of a point in time. No one can uh, measure how many there have been throughout history. Nobody can tell us how many there will be in the future. Talk about progress, right? Even better than that is this passage from Revelation 7 where we actually get a glimpse of the kingdom in its full fruition. The Apostle John writes, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So from a mustard seed to the largest of plants, from one man to a diverse multitude that nobody could number, the progress is immeasurable. The magnitude is unfathomable. Mustard seed plant isn't just tall. Jesus talks about how it has large branches so the birds can make nests in its shade. The kingdom is a place of peace. The kingdom is a place of rest, unlike anything we've ever known. In the book of Revelation, we're told it's a place where all of our tears are dried and there's no more pain. If I'm using Tolkien's words, it's a place where everything sad will come untrue. Is anyone looking forward to that? Aren't we desperate for that? I mean, our world is the opposite of peace. Forget the world. Just look at our neighborhood, right? Our own neck of the woods. We've felt that greatly just even this past week. There's no bastion on earth that can provide the peace that we crave. But the kingdom will be a place of peace. So the plan is people The process is God's work, and the progress is immeasurable. Doesn't that free you to do the work that we're called to do in sharing the gospel? I mean, not only does Jesus show us that it's a worthy task, he tells us that he's in charge of the results. So maybe this week is the week that you and I, we both try, we all try liberally sowing seed, telling our neighbors, our families, our coworkers the gospel. Or or better than that, more than one category of those people. Knowing that there really are people who are receptive to God's word out there. Ready to receive salvation. Ready to receive entrance into this kingdom of peace. And God is in charge of the process of kingdom growth. If he worked in me, he can work in somebody else. If he did it with you, he can do it with somebody else. Now, before we close, I just want to highlight the significance of Jesus using seeds in his parables. Why do you think he chose seeds? Some say that that's because that's what his hearers would have understood. They were uneducated men. I think that that's probably helpful. I agree. Um, Putting heavenly truth into earthly terms is definitely helpful. But listen to Jesus' own words uh, in John 12, 24. He says, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, 
it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So Jesus isn't just our king. He's our savior. And he actually made himself the prototype. Think about it. With the frailty and the weakness of a seed, he gave up his life to be murdered, to be crucified for our sin in our place. Like a seed, he went into the ground, covered in darkness. But like a seed, his story doesn't end in the ground, right? He was raised on the third day. What was sown perishable was raised imperishable. What was sown in dishonor was raised in glory. Believe in him. The Apostle Paul calls him the first fruits from among the dead. Resurrection is ours because it was his first. We have hope. We have eternal life. We have kingdom citizenship because of him. If we believe in him. So hear these words. Receive them deeply. Let them take root. Because God is doing something greater than you or I could ever comprehend. And the kingdom growth plan is people who deeply receive Jesus. Process is God's work. And the progress is immeasurable. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have a plan. And that you would even use us for your plan. That's an honor. Um, your plan starts with people who deeply receive you. We thank you that you are in charge of the process and that you're going to bring progress that we could never even imagine, that we will be able to celebrate with you, with every nation, tribe, and language uh, at your throne. We look forward to that day, to when you bring peace and restore this earth, and we pray that you would help us to move beyond the barriers that keep us from trusting you and sharing your word and being your people. In Jesus' name, amen.